Hi, this is John, the creator of Tale of the Manticore. I wanted to add this note to my first episode to thank you for giving my podcast a shot. I'm very aware that there's a sea of options to choose from. I hope that you'll find that your time was well spent. Just before we get on with it, one quick note. Recently, a listener suggested that I clarify my disclaimer. Where sensitive materials are concerned, which lines do I cross or not cross? Here's what you can expect from Tale of the Manticore. There are frequent and detailed descriptions of violence accompanied by graphic sound effects. Sexual assault and torture are sometimes referred to, but I do not explore, dwell upon, or describe them in any detail. As for sex and profanity, they of course exist in my fictional world, but I do not have any intention of writing about them in a meaningful way. I hope these details will help you to decide whether or not my podcast is right for you. One more time, because it cannot be overstated. Thank you for listening. And now, on with the show. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Tale of the Manticore. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old-school paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. In Tale of the Manticore, nothing is on rails. The dice determine all. When reading a novel, we wonder how a character will survive a given situation. In Tale of the Manticore, the plot is not predetermined, and there is only if a character will survive. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared. If the dice decide, their fate is at hand. The only guaranteed survivor is the story itself. In this way, Tale of the Manticore is more akin to a game than a story. However, Tale of the Manticore also does not have players. Here, there is only the storyteller and the dice. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Once again, welcome to Tale of the Manticore, and thank you very much for giving this podcast a chance. I appreciate your time and will try my best to make every episode exciting and compelling. On this episode, because it is the first, I wanted to begin with a short explanation of how I came to do this, and also spend a few minutes discussing the mechanics and rules of the game elements I'll be using. If you'd like to get right into the story, just skip ahead five or ten minutes until you hear the narration begin. So, I came to begin this project in a few different ways. I really discovered podcasts just a couple of years ago, but I've always loved fantasy and dark fantasy novels and RPGs. I'm hoping to recapture the feeling of boundless excitement I had when I was just a kid, reading through the original D&D rulebooks, blown away by the art of Errol Otis and Jeff D. In the spirit of trying to bring these feelings back to life, I'll mostly be applying old-school rules to the creation of Tale of the Manticore. I spent the last couple of years searching for the perfect podcast for me, I found some good ones, but the vast majority of D&D-related podcasts I found to be just something different than the game that I loved. There's such a huge number of comedy live-play podcasts, but only a rare few where I found the story immersive, where I could really suspend my disbelief. 
I started thinking about making my own, but never really solidified into a plan. I was still hoping to find one someone else had made. One day, I was watching the news, and I saw a clip of an interview with Lin-Manuel Miranda. He was being asked for his advice for young composers, and he said something that stayed with me. To paraphrase, he told the interviewer that young composers should make the thing that did not yet exist, but that they wished did. I thought about that a lot. I really did. And I decided to take his advice. I wasn't exactly sure what I would make, but I knew what I wouldn't. And that was a start. In Tale of the Manticore, you will find no gnome barbarians named Tyler with a pet Pomeranian, no half-orc paladins with an intelligence of three, no tabaxi monks with two wooden legs and a pirate accent. There will be none of that. Comedy shows are great, I'm a fan of a few of them, but it's just not something I want to make myself. There will also be none of the elements of new school gaming that I feel do great damage to the suspension of disbelief. There will be no dragonborn, no tieflings, no kung fu, no bards as a class. Another thing there will not be is the sound of me eating and drinking into the microphone. For many people this is not a problem, but for just a few of us, me included, it really is. Here's what you will find. Fairly short episodes. A strong effort to maintain suspension of disbelief and create an immersive experience. An effort to capture the purity of the OSRPG and an absolutely slavish devotion to the dictates of the dice. As the storyteller, I plan to be along for the ride and I will not know what will happen in the story as it unfolds. So let's waste no more time and jump in. We begin this one time with some mechanics because our story has no characters yet and we do need a few. I'll aim for five characters, one of each major class, the rules for character generation will be as follows. For each stat, roll three dice. Any score of five or lower, re-roll. If the prime requisite of the character is under 13, re-roll that too. Everything else stays as the dice show. Ready? Here we go. Let's roll up the first five characters for Tale of the Manticore. For each character, we'll be rolling seven attributes. The usual strength, intelligence, wisdom, dexterity, constitution, and charisma, and one more ability score, luck, that I'm adding just in case I ever need it. Are you ready? Here we go, our first character. Here's the first roll. Strength. A 10. Intelligence. 9. Wisdom. Another 9. Dexterity. 4. Hmm, that's a re-roll. Re-rolling. Nine, that's better. Constitution, 13. That will give this character a plus one bonus to hit points. Charisma, 11. Luck, 14. Well, looking at these stats, it's nothing exceptional, but with a good constitution and a decent strength, I think this would make a good dwarf character. Here's our next one. Strength, eight. Eight will give this character a negative one penalty, two to hit and damage rolls. Intelligence. 17, finally a good roll. That will give this character a bonus to languages. Wisdom. An eight, dexterity. A nine, constitution. 13, charisma. Seven, another penalty for this character, this time for reaction rolls. Luck. This character is clearly our magic user. With an intelligence of 17 and a strength of 8, there's really no other good choices. The low charisma might make for some interesting role-playing later. Let's roll up our third character. Strength. 12. Intelligence. 
11. Wisdom. 14. There's a bonus there for some saving throws. Dexterity. 13. Another bonus. This one to armor class. Constitution. 14. Get another bonus. This time to hit points. Charisma. An 8. Hmm. That's a negative 1 penalty for reaction rolls. Luck. 14. This character is extremely well-rounded and above average in almost every way, with the exception of charisma. Because of the high constitution and wisdom, I think this would make a good cleric. Our fourth character, Strength. 13. This character will have plus one on to hit and damage rolls. Intelligence. 9. Wisdom. 11. Dexterity. Another 11. Constitution. 12. Charisma. 13. There's a plus one on reaction rolls for that. Luck. 14. This character has good strength and constitution. It's a no-brainer. This character is our fighter. Our final character. Here are the rolls. Strength. 5. That's a re-roll. Re-rolling. 11. Well, that's better. Intelligence. 9. Wisdom. 10. Dexterity. 14. This character will have an AC bonus. Constitution. 9. Charisma. 15. This character will have a bonus here as well. Luck. 15. This last character has really good stats. Almost everything is above average. With stats like these, this character would make a good rogue or thief. And that completes our character generation. Now, one house rule that I will adopt is that all characters will begin each level with their maximum possible hit points. That's about the only benefit my characters are going to get, though. On the other hand, these characters will begin life with certain disadvantages. They'll have no equipment, no weapons, no armor, and they'll begin life already feeling the effects of hunger and thirst. Here's a quick recap of the characters I've created for the beginning of our story. The first is Soli, a male dwarf. He has nine hit points. His stats are mostly average, but he does have a bonus to his hit points due to his high constitution. Next is Umura, a human female magic user. She has a very high intelligence, getting a bonus to languages. She gets a bonus to her constitution as well, so her starting hit points will be five. This character also has penalties in strength, wisdom, and in charisma, with the minus one to each of those. Next up is Gyrios, a human male cleric. He also has a hit point bonus and begins life with seven hit points. He has a dexterity bonus to his armor class of plus one. He also gets a wisdom bonus, which will give him a benefit on some saving throws. Finally, he has a penalty to his reaction checks due to his slightly low charisma. Our fourth character is Kagan, He's a human fighter, male, with eight hit points. He has a strength and charisma of 13. Our final and fifth character is Eridine, a human female rogue. She has four hit points, and due to her high stats, she gets a bonus of plus one to her AC and to her reaction rolls for her high charisma. Well, let's throw these characters in and see how they do. Prologue. Day one. The prisoners' forced march only stopped during the daytime when the goblins, four of them, took turns at sentry or rest, or amused themselves by beating the men and abusing the women. 
at these times, from sunrise to sunset, the prisoners were hooded. These hoods were only removed at night, and so the prisoners lived in perpetual darkness and isolation. At night, they watched the stars twinkling above as they stumbled through mile after mile of hilly woods towards some unknown destination. At sunset, the hoods were removed, but still the prisoners could not communicate with each other. Early attempts to do so had resulted in swift and harsh beatings from a lead goblin who carried a thick wooden club and used it at the slightest provocation. At all times, their wrists were attached to a stout pole that connected all seven of them, one in front of the other. Kagan had been a prisoner for three days. His party had been attacked and overcome by a horde of goblins on the road to Burke. Most of them had been killed on the spot. Others had been dragged off into the woods for God's know what purpose. But he was corralled with four others to form a chain gang. They were taken to a series of dark caves where they were beaten mercilessly and left, bound and helpless, for many hours before a small detail of new goblins arrived. Light arguments in a guttural tongue, and then coins, were exchanged. Soon after, he found himself separated from this group and joined to his present one. Of the dwarf, the other two men, the two women, or the young girl, tethered to his pole, he knew almost nothing. All seven were filthy and starving. They'd been stripped to their ragged undergarments, and they showed the physical signs of the goblin's maltreatment. They were barefoot, weak, and starving. For days, they had been fed nothing and given a few mere sips of water. The pole they were forced to carry was a heavy burden. Heavier still was the sure knowledge that whatever fate awaited them, things would certainly get worse. The suggestion of dawn was coloring the night sky at the horizon when the lead goblin, the one who bore the cruel club, spoke some words and signaled a halt. As one, the goblins drew their weapons and fanned apart, hissing commands at each other and looking wild-eyed to the dense forest ahead. Presently, there was a whoosh, and a rock the size of a child's head rocketed through their midst, striking the trunk of a thick oak behind them. The prisoners, alarmed, tried to scramble in different directions, but the pole to which they were tethered prevented any such movement and instead bore them all to the ground as they lost their footing. Kagan found himself kneeling, struggling to get to his feet when the treetops shook and a huge figure came into view. The thing that stood before them, ignoring the prisoners and intent on the goblins, was very, very large. It was shaped as a man, but taller and unnaturally thick with muscle. It might have weighed as much as a bear and looked as strong. Its eyes, black under a heavy brow, looked dull and stupid. The mouth gaped open, two short tusks protruded from a lower lip that dripped saliva. In its right hand, the ogre held a stout, gnarled tree trunk, stripped of its branches to form a crude club. The roots at the end splayed out to form a wicked, spiked tip. In its left hand, it held another large rock. Without breaking eye contact with the goblins, the ogre pointed at Kagan's party with its club and pounded its broad chest with the other hand carrying the rock. The goblins understood quickly, but they were not keen to surrender their slaves. They looked to each other, worry and hate etched in their deformed features, and then raised their various weapons. Other than the club wielder, the goblins carried a dagger, a bow, and a short sword among them. Dramatis Personae Kagan 
Kagan is a level one human male fighter. He is 20 years old. He has brown eyes and wavy brown hair that he wears short. He usually has a full beard. At six foot one inches tall and 190 pounds, he's a big man and can come across as intimidating to those that do not know him well. Adding to this is the fact that Kagan does not smile or laugh easily around strangers. In truth, he's more stoic than he is foul-tempered, though he is prone to depression at times, as he grieves the passing of his father six months ago. Kagan is a natural leader, though he does not fully realize this yet. People tend to trust him and to listen to him. He has a sincere quality, and in truth, he is sincere. There is nothing of guile in Kagan. He's a simple woodsman, nothing more or less. He is skilled at forestry and setting traps. He can hunt, though he is not a great shot with a bow. His preferred weapon is the axe, a tool that feels comfortable in his hands. He has no real experience with combat, but he will soon discover that he is both brave and fierce in a fight. Kagan was born and raised in Briar Hill. His mother passed when he was a child, and he has no memory of her. Having no siblings, his father was his whole family, and so when he died, taken by disease, Kagan lost his whole family. He soon left Briar Hill in an effort to escape the constant reminders of his loss and found woodcutting work in the nearby town of Sparrow Lake. There he stayed for six months before growing restless and moving on to a good job site rumored to be found in Burke. But he never made it there. Traveling with just a small family of six for companions, he was an easy target for the goblin slaver horde. Part two, prologue, day one, dawn. Kagan watched, a helpless observer as the bow-wielding goblin, arrow already knocked, suddenly jabbered a curse, pulled back and let fly. The arrow sailed wide, slipping into the woods with a hiss. The attack enraged the young ogre, who raised his makeshift club and brought it down atop the archer. With an audible cracking of bone, the goblin collapsed under the blow, as if made of straw. The other goblins lunged at the huge creature, and, though they hit and cut him, they were no match for his power. The young ogre stomped about, almost like an infant throwing a tantrum and bellowing in frustration. One foot landed atop the archer's corpse, and a sharp twang sounded as the goblin's bow snapped in half. The hand holding the large rock found a target shattering the dagger-wielder's jaw. That goblin was dead before he hit the ground. Now only two goblins remained. They looked at each other in panic and then back at the young ogre. The swordsman dropped his weapon to the ground and took flight. Seeing this, the lead goblin followed. The ogre took some moments to calm down. The heaving of its huge chest slowed. It grunted several times and scratched at its minor wounds before turning its attention to the bound slaves. It snorted once like a horse and then raised its weapon arm. Before anyone had a chance to even think, the club, covered in goblin gore, came down on the skull of the young girl and crushed it with a sickening crunch. One of the prisoners, a large blonde man, was the first to react. He surged uselessly against his bonds and swore, You bastard! You demon! Cut these bonds and- He never finished his sentence, for the ogre, with a blank look of not understanding or caring what the man said, had thrust the tip of his club into the man's chest and crushed his ribcage. Now, there were only five prisoners remaining. Two men, two women, and a dwarf. The ogre presently dropped his rock and club and approached their line. 
With dark, rough hands, he reached in amid their cries and broke the restraining pole in two. He then snapped the binding rope as though it were a piece of thread and dragged the attached corpses of the blonde man and the child away from the group. He pointed at the survivors and then at the ground. You stay. With that, he picked up his club with his right hand. His left pulled the rope with his catch over his shoulder as though it were a line of fish. The ogre trudged off in the direction it had come without looking back. The prisoners said nothing for a long time. Finally, one of the women broke the silence. Time to go. To the amazement of the other prisoners, she slid free of her bonds. Thank Mazagar, said the other man. Now free us. Do it quickly before that thing comes back. How did you escape? asked the other woman. She was visibly older than the first, and Kagan noticed, not for the first time, that her skin was adorned with mystic tattoos. Been starving for days now, came the reply. Actually, I could have slipped my bonds yesterday, but those damn goblins never let us alone for a moment. A look of disgust crossed her face for a moment, then she shook her head as if to clear her thoughts. She wandered a short distance away and rifled through the fallen goblins' corpses. She took away several items, including the abandoned sword, dagger, water skin, and a belt pouch, before giving the nearest goblin a hard kick. Rotten hell. At this point, the prologue narration is over and uncoupled from my decisions as a writer. From now on, the dice will decide what will happen. One of the still-bound prisoners will appeal to Eredine, who has freed herself, for help. But Eredine does not know these people, nor does her personality dictate a necessarily altruistic behavior. There are four characters still bound. Soli the Dwarf, Umora the Magic User, Gyrios the Cleric, and Kagan the Fighter. I'm going to roll a die eight. On a one or a two, Soli will ask Eredine for help. On a three or a four, Umora will. On a five or six, Gyrios. On a seven or eight, Kagan will ask for help. The roll is a three. Umura will ask first. This is bad luck, because she has the lowest charisma in the group. I'll rule that Umura needs a seven or higher on a 2d6 in order to persuade Eredine to cut them free. And the roll. A six. Even without her minus one penalty, she has failed. Still, this is not a critical failure. Let's see how this will play out in roleplay. You must free us, said Umora, perhaps a little too imperiously. She quickly perceived her mistake and tried again. I mean, please, please help us. That thing will return, you know that. Eredine nodded and began to move toward them but stopped short. She had noticed the magic user's tattoos, mystic signs inked on various parts of her body. Eredine had never seen anything like that before, and she instinctively mistrusted anything she did not understand. She frowned to herself and then spoke. Forgive me. You would only slow me down, but perhaps you may yet save yourselves. She tossed the goblin's dagger into the brush near the others as they stared at her, horror-stricken. Eredine repeated. Forgive me before dashing into the woods and quickly disappearing among the trees. The prisoners were again suspended in stunned silence for moments before Girio said, That knife, 
We need to find it right away. Mazagard knows that thing will come back as soon as it gets hungry. Everyone quickly agreed, and the group maneuvered themselves toward the place where the woman had thrown the dagger. It took several minutes of searching before Soli found it and began sawing at his bonds. Once he was free, he did not hesitate to cut free the others. Bless you, Master Dwarf, said Gyrios. We should take what we can and leave immediately before... Agreed, said Kagan. He was rubbing his wrists and moving toward the goblin corpses. Is anything left here? Let's see. Two water skins, a broken short bow, and a pair of belts with pouches attached. These pouches seem to contain something. Mm, coins. The change from our purchase, perhaps, ventured Umura, stepping over to collect some of the items. Fellows, I suggest we go back the way we came. Eventually, perhaps we can find a road, or a river. If we're lucky, a town, some help. Aye, said the dwarf. I had going to be only enemies. And in that direction, he said, pointing off to where the ogre had come, with the beast. The party agreed, and, gathering up what they could, ventured back in the direction from which they had come. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. You have been listening to the remastered, re-recorded version of Episode Zero, for those of you new to the show, welcome. If you enjoy what you've heard, please consider leaving a five-star review for the show on iTunes. For show notes, more behind-the-scenes info, rants, and random thoughts, please visit taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. Our story continues in the next chapter of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Hey, it's J. Mark Accento here, broadcasting to you from the end of the world. Here to tell you about the Tabletop for the End of the World podcast. 500 years in the future, corporatocracy is in full force. The rich and affluent are plugged into a virtual reality system called True Reality, while the rest are unplugged, forced to live in a decrepit country full of mutated monsters, robots, and cannibals. Four survivors within this world have found comfort in an ancient game called Dungeons and Dragons. Tifu is the first and only of its kind. It features an actual play podcast where the players live in this post-apocalyptic world. Fans have described it as the love child between the Adventure Zone and Wilkins Night Vale. It is truly a unique experience, and here is a bit of a preview for you. You are awash in colors you have never imagined and will never be able to imagine again. Hello, and welcome to Devil Prison. Follow me, unwilling companions. I can't even imagine seeing people again. <laughs> we should talk about that. Can we, can we talk that's, about phrasing? That's a little bit of a weird... properly phrased? That was a weird... Are you proud of me? No. Hello. We can see you. Excuse me? By the strength of Olympus, I will destroy you! Is there anywhere we can go to suffer more? Do I get an award for uh, trying real hard? Oh, like maybe they'll figure it out. Or, oh, they're gonna die.